The late Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken fame was flying on an airplane when a baby began to just bust out in tears. The baby cried and screamed for a period of time and you know, there's nothing more unnerving, at least to me, than a baby that just keeps crying. I'm sure that we share that sentiment. And uh, no matter what the mom tried to do or the flight attendants tried to do, they just couldn't calm this baby down. And so Colonel Sanders asked the woman if she, if she didn't mind that he would love to hold the baby. And so she, nothing to lose, gave the baby over to uh, Colonel Sanders, and he began to rock the baby and just kind of speak softly to the baby. And the baby began to quiet down, began to calm down, and finally fell asleep, and actually fell asleep for the entire, uh, for the entire flight. And so at that point, at the very end, he obviously gave the baby back, and a woman came by and whispered to him. She says, thank you so much, Colonel. Uh, thank you so much for doing that for us, for all of us. And he said, ma'am, I didn't do that for all of us. I did that for the baby. So true acts of compassion are rare in the world in which we live. There are many people who will act in their own interest to try to secure peace and comfort for themselves. But there are few compassionate people in the world who will honestly try to secure peace and comfort for other people. Fortunately for us, the Bible teaches us that our God is a compassionate God. We read in the scriptures, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13, it says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people with, and will have compassion on the afflicted. Well, Jesus Christ's compassion has been on display throughout the entire book of Luke so far. Time after time after time, we see somebody suffering and struggling in, in a midst of hardship. And Jesus goes to them. And, and, and he begins to secure their peace. And so he's a compassionate Lord. And so we come to now to chapter 13. So we shouldn't be surprised that we see his compassion on display once again. And so there are three things within the text I think we want to take note on concerning this subject of compassion. The first is this, is we see a need for compassion. A need for compassion. Notice, if you will, in verse 10. The Bible says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. We find Jesus here in a familiar place. He's, he's in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And we've seen this on many occasions through the book of Luke, where he goes into a synagogue and he begins to teach the word, teach the word, and then he begins to heal somebody, and then it's followed up by him in some kind of uh, theological debate with the naysayers there, the religious leaders of the day. Well, we know that he's been doing this ever since the very beginning of his ministry. In, in fact, after Jesus actually marked his official beginning of his ministry with this particular idea of him going into a synagogue. He, he, had, he was baptized, and after his baptism, he went out into the wilderness, and then he immediately went to a synagogue where he began to preach the word. That's when he opens up the scroll, he reads it, and he says, today these words have been fulfilled in your midst, in your presence. And so now what we find is that this is Luke's last recording of Jesus Christ in a synagogue before his soon coming death. 
And we don't know really much about what he taught about on that Sabbath, but we do know a great deal about his healing. See, there was a woman there that day that showed up to worship. She had been suffering for a period of 18 years. Her suffering had something to do with her spine. She was uh, bent over at the waist in, in kind of like a 90-degree angle, if you will. So the majority of the time, she walked around literally looking at the dirt. She was in pain every minute of her life. There was no reprieve and, and, and no comfort for her, whether she was standing or sitting or lying down. It was all the same misery. And we understand that everything was difficult for her. Her condition would have impeded her work, her sleep, her relationships with others. And it really would have robbed her from her dignity. As we saw last week and in in last week's passage, uh, many people during that time and even today believe that when somebody is suffering so heinously, they must have done something to deserve it. That, that if, if you are suffering, then they believe then God must be coming after you, disciplining you or judging you because you must have done something just awful to deserve the judgment of God. And so not only was she suffering physically, but what we know now is that she was also suffering emotionally, understanding that she was constantly under the eye of suspicion of everyone around her, thinking that it was sin that caused her to be able to suffer in such a way. But Luke makes it known that her condition wasn't really the consequence of her sin. In fact, that day when she came, there's no indication at all that she came to uh, there to be healed by Jesus Christ. This seems to be something that she had been doing for some time. She, She had been suffering over 18 years, but yet she's still showing up in the house to worship God without resentment and without bitterness. And to me, in my experience, that's a rarity. Many people, when they begin to suffer, want to come to God in the midst of that suffering. That seems to be natural, doesn't it? And people will come to a church. And and, and basically what they're saying is, hey, I need God to do something for me to relieve the difficulty and the suffering and the pain that I'm experiencing. And they're looking for God. And they're willing to to give God a week or two or a month or maybe a couple months. It's usually not very long. And if he doesn't deliver them, what do they do? Their hearts harden and they abandon and they go their way. But this woman wasn't the same. This wasn't, wasn't embittered. She was a worshiper of God. Now, look, I, I don't know everything that's going on uh, in this church. I know some of what's going on in your lives. We've met. We've met in your home. We've met over a bite to eat. We've talked about some difficulties. We've tried to pray about it, and we've looked into the Word to try to find ways of God's wisdom to navigate through hardships and difficulties. But the truth is, I don't know everything of, that is ultimately going on. Nobody does. None of us do. In fact, I wouldn't be able to handle it if I did know all the struggles and the pains that are going on in the hearts of people. But let me tell you this. I can assure you that you walking away from God is never the answer. It is never the answer. One might wonder why in the world hadn't this woman abandoned this whole religion thing and God, if he's not gonna do for her what he would want them to do and alleviate her pain, why doesn't she just take off? Why doesn't she abandon it altogether? Why is she still showing up week after week to come to corporate worship? Well, the reason for that is that her primary pursuit was not a physical healing. Her primary pursuit was a holy God. That's what kept her coming back over and over and over again. And that's what makes all the difference. Now, what we find here is that Luke gives us insight to what caused her suffering. 
It, it, if it wasn't her fault, then what ultimately was it? He says that she had a disabling spirit. Now, critics often suggest that Luke's diagnosis here was really typical of primitive and pre-modern, a pre-modern understanding of sicknesses. In other words, way back then, they would think if you were sick, it had to, some demon spirit had something to do with that, some evil spirit. So if you get rid of the spirit, then physically you would be fine. But Dr. Luke knows better than that. In fact, as we've been studying through the book of Luke, we found that on many occasions, Luke has with great detail been describing people's physical afflictions and never makes mention at all about, their, about a demon spirit. Here, there, there's obviously something completely different about this. We don't know how he knows. He knows it might either be from one of the apostles letting him know that the demon spirit was behind this, or maybe the Holy Spirit had revealed it to him. But either way, here's the point. She has a physical problem, but that's not really her problem. Her problem is spiritual, which is manifesting its way into this physical disability and condition. So here's the point. The point is no one and nothing on earth can help her. Nothing can free her. Nothing can lose her. Why? Because a doctor is not going to be, cure, be able to cure what's ailing her. Medicine can't cure what's ailing her. Why? Because it's not ultimately physical. It's spiritual. What she needs is somebody to have compassion on her who also has the ability to be able to loose her from the bondage that she is in with this demon and the devil. And this is a picture, I believe. And I want to be careful here because I don't want to allegorize the text. You know what that means, right? When somebody looks at a pet picture and they take something physical and they spiritualize everything about it. It's like, you know people like this. They take a trash can out and they go, this is like the junk in our lives right here. And everything is like that. And they interpret the whole Bible that way. But I don't want to do that here. I want to be very careful. But this is a picture, I believe, of the condition that we were in before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are in literal spiritual and sin bondage, both to Satan and to sin. We're in bondage. We cannot break free. We, we, are, uh, we have manifested that sin, and our spiritual condition is manifested in all types of sinful actions. And please know that if Satan was left unrestrained and unchecked, he would do the same thing to you and I as he did to this woman, only worse if he was allowed to do it. So here we see Satan in his cruelty wants to disable every one of us, but fortunately Jesus is compassionate and wants to set every one of us straight, amen? And so we see this, we see here is, is a need for compassion. Let, let's also look at now the act of compassion. Notice, if you will, in verse 12, Jesus' compassion on display. It says, when he saw her, he, he called her over and he said to her, he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he left his hands, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Now, once again, and I wanna emphasize this, there's nothing in the text that would suggest that, that this woman came specifically for Jesus or came really to be healed, but rather she was coming once again to glorify God. But even though she's pushed over to the side, men and women would have sat in two different sides of the synagogue. And even though she's pushed to the side and a group of other women, Jesus notices her and he sees her in her need. Church, please understand this. Jesus Christ is never unaware of your trouble and your suffering. He's never blind to it. He's never ignorant of it. 
And don't ever fall for the lie that either he doesn't know or some reason he may know, but he doesn't care because he does. He knows your trouble. He knows your hardship. He knows your peril. And he desperately cares for you. And so he shows his care for this woman and he, and he calls her out. He says, come out of there. And she comes and she is bent over before him, whatever standing looks like for her. Now, I don't know, sometimes when I read this, I think, well, is this really compassion? I mean, here is a woman who doesn't like to be in groups of people anyway because people are judging her, saying that she's full of sin. That's how she got in the condition to begin with. And now Jesus is calling her out right in front of a whole group of people, right up on stage in church, right in front of everybody. Doesn't sound very compassionate. So why does he call her up? There's probably several different reasons. But let me tell you at least one. I think it's because primarily he is calling her to faith to faith in him. See, this is what happens oftentimes is, beloved, please understand that God has the power to cure you and to rescue you from enslavement of sin. And he is willing to be able to do so. But the only way that comes about is for when you and I come to him and place our faith in him. That's when he takes his willingness and ability and parts it into our life and he forgives us of the sin that we have and he, and he sets us free. He looses us from that particular bondage. So she comes and she comes before the Lord and Jesus responds to her at that moment, laying hands on there and he tells her that she is clean and she is forgiven at that particular moment. Now, this is a little bit awkward for everybody involved because men usually didn't touch women in public, which is probably a good thing, right? Would you agree? And, and then not only that, but there's a strangeness about this because people wouldn't want to touch somebody who had been afflicted because their fear is that their affection and their disability would somehow pollute themselves. So they didn't want to be around such disabilities. But of course, we know in the word of God that Jesus couldn't be corrupted by the work of Satan, but he could only undo it as he does hear the devil's work in just one touch. And this is a beautiful picture again of salvation. Think about it. Satan has run havoc over our lives from the moment that we were born and we were born in sin. He had kept us enslaved to sin, enslaved to himself, all that was enslavement. And he did everything he could to destroy us and to make us crooked in every possible and imaginable way. But yet Jesus, in just one touch of grace and compassion, at the moment we were saved, he set us straight. This is what Jesus Christ did for every one of us. And this is what we want. This is what we rejoice in for ourselves, but it's what we want for our friends and our family and our neighbors, is it not? We want everybody else to do the same. A touch of God that would free them from the bondage of the devil and result in making straight all that is crooked in their lives from their fractured marriages to setting them free from their addictions, broken hearts, and most of all, from their sin. This is what we desire. This is a part of why we exist as a church. This is why we want to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, to show compassion and set people free, amen? That's what we desire. You know, it's interesting to me how Jesus always seems to heal people different ways. Have you noticed this? Like sometimes he, he speaks to them and they're healed. Sometimes he lays hands on them and they're healed. And, and sometimes he, he doesn't even say anything to them. Like with the centurion and his servant, he just, the centurion shows faith and, and he doesn't even meet the servant, but he heals the servant from a distance. My favorite one, okay, is, is, is obviously when Jesus spits into the mud for the blind guy and rubs it on his eyes, right? I don't know why that's my favorite. It's weird, I know. But he does it. Sometimes he has people, he goes, hey, go dip in the pool over there and, and, then, and then you'll be healed. He does it differently. Why does he do it differently? I think part of that reason is because you and I are far too pragmatic people. 
We look at something, we go, oh, that's how you do it. Okay, that's great. That's fantastic. And if Jesus healed the same exact way, all of us would have our ledgers out and we'd make sure that we're going through every single step as though we were reading some potion or something or putting something into a pot to make sure that everything would be right. And imagine if, if we did that. Imagine if the only way to be healed is, is to spit into your hands and dirt and put it on people's eyes. It would just be weird, but we would do it. And the key here is, is the reason I think that Jesus doesn't heal always in the same way is simply this, is because it's not a method that will rescue you. It is only a man that will rescue you. The emphasis is not in the methodology. And, and, and it's not, and so many people think that way. They think somehow, some way, if they just do enough, if they see enough therapists, if they see enough this, or they have whatever it is in, that the world has to offer, that they are gonna be delivered from their enslavement to sin and the consequences and the outcomes of those sin. But the truth of the matter is they may ease some of those uh, by, by some kind of uh, helping to, to reform people's behavior or to suppress somebody's behavior. But the truth of the matter is, my friend, is the only way to be changed is have Jesus Christ who sets us free from the power of our enemy. That is it. And so we see this here. And look at, look at her response. The Bible says, and she glorified God. Glorifying God is a natural response to us understanding what God has done for us. Would you imagine? You get that. So when you come in this morning, you know when we come, and we're so blessed by, by Nick and, and, and the band and the other worship leaders. We're so blessed here for them to be able to come and lead us. But what are you expecting is going on at that moment? Some people view that as kind of like a pep rally. You know, we really haven't thought about God all week, so let's go in and let's see if they could really get us jazzed up. Let's see if we could just really get them geared up. And so Nick's up here with pom-poms. Can you just picture that? Give me a J, give me an E, give me an S, give me a U, give me an S. What's it say? Jesus, yeah! And we all start going crazy. Is that what we're doing? Is we're supposed to get jacked up, geared up, fired up for Jesus? No. Is it for us to be able to kind of smooth God over, go, man, maybe we're sincere enough in all of our worship. Maybe he'll give us something. No, beloved, worship is a response of what God has already done. That's why we praise him. That's why we glorify him. And we come in that way and we thank him specifically to glorify him that we saw, he saw us crippled by sin. He called us out. He touched us and he delivered us from the bondage of sin and Satan. Now we see a third point. We see a lack of compassion. We saw our need for compassion. We saw Jesus' act of compassion. And now we see the lack of compassion here. Now, just so that you know, not everybody is really excited about the work that Jesus Christ does in people's lives. Some people are apparently too spiritual for that, okay? And we found a man here. Jesus had just dealt with old crooked back over on the other side. And now he is, I know, very compassionate, I know. And, and, and so now he is going to deal with old crooked nose on the other side, all right? Another man. This is a man who doesn't like anything that he's seeing. And so we sit here in verse 14. It says, but the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath said to his people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be, and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. This is so idiotic, it's hard to even parse it out, right? And again, I'm not offending him. He's not here today, all right, this man. And so, so you look at this and you hear what he says and it's hard to even get your arms around it because obviously this is a completely different response to Jesus than this woman. 
And, and the fact is, is, is the woman is rejoicing over what Jesus is. He's indignant, which means he has deep-seated anger for Christ. And the reason for it is, is because Jesus broke what he thinks is one of the laws. One of the laws is what? Is to keep the Sabbath holy. He's viewing Jesus as though he had broken it because he had healed on the sick. And he's saying that that healing really equals work. You worked on the Sabbath, you broke it. We can have none of this. Now, what's interesting is, is that he is angry at Jesus, but he doesn't direct his anger at Jesus. He's passive aggressive. I've had people in the ministry be passive aggressive with me. They don't just tell me out that they hate my guts. They just, they kind of go around and they're like, you know, I hate pastors that do things like that. And I'm like, well, I just did that. You know, and so you kind of put two things together and so partially because he's probably just, he's, he's, he's scared of Jesus, I, I would be too. And so what he does, instead of speaking directly to Jesus, he goes out to the crowd and he goes, people, listen up. Listen to me. You've got to get something in your head. Now remember, this is the ruler of the synagogue. So the ruler of the synagogue, his job is to care for people. His job is to make sure that everything is tidy in the synagogue. If it's broken, he fixes it. He's the one that keeps track of the calendaring of who's going to speak on what Sabbath day. So to, to sum it all up, his job is to care for the physical and spiritual needs of the people, which Jesus just did, but now he's mad. He wants to get back and speak out at Jesus, but instead of Jesus, he turns to the crowd and he goes, people, there's seven days in the week. Six days you can be healed. Come, you can be healed anytime you want. Just come any of these days. But the one day, the Sabbath, is the one day you are not to be radically changed. It sounds ridiculous, does it not? You would think on the Sabbath day when you're coming together, that's when you would want to see Jesus Christ in God destroying what Christ, in undoing what it was that Satan had done to his people. You would think that you would want to see this. And so he's just like, this should not be done on this particular day. Now what's going on? Just, just remember this for a moment. Remember that, that the Sabbath was a holy day, but why did God give it? He didn't give it to us to burden us. He, he gave it to us to take off the burden of life. He's given you a day off. That's part of it. There's much more to it than that. In fact, uh, part of it is to let the animals rest, to, to let people rest. It's, another part of it would be for us to, to, to learn to trust God. We work for six days, but yet we trust him to supply for seven, showing our dependency upon him. And, and then, of course, it's a day that's supposed to be set aside that we're focusing on God and unclouding all of that confusion in our lives and just, just worshiping God in the midst of it. Again, here's, here's the thing. It, what we understand is that the Sabbath was made for man, but this man was saying that man was made for the Sabbath. What was most important was the Sabbath day. And so he's extremely angry at this particular point. He's going crazy. And then at this point, we find out that Jesus goes ahead and drops the hammer on him, verse 15. He said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away 